This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is including all in the body of Christ. In the first half, Eric D. Huntsman shares his address entitled Hard Sayings and Safe Spaces, Making Room for Struggle as Well as Faith. Then in the second half, we'll hear from Rick Jellen with his BYU devotional address, Quinoa and Olive Trees, Strengthening the Lord's Vineyard. Jesus ended his pivotal and heavily symbolic discourse on the bread of life by declaring, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. The crowds who had followed Jesus since his miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the Jewish religious authorities who opposed him were not the only ones who failed to understand his meaning. Even many of his own disciples exclaimed, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? From that time, many of his disciples walked back and went no more with him. Somewhat plaintively, Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Will ye also go away? In response, Peter asked, Lord, to whom will we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. The expression a hard saying has become a trope for any doctrine or practice that is difficult to understand, accept, or follow. Over the past few years, when I have asked my students what are hard sayings to them, although they mention faith issues and apparent historical problems, they have increasingly spoken of life challenges, challenges that seem to call into question God's love for them, or struggles they often feel they must endure alone without the love and understanding of their fellow saints. Such hard sayings include gender disparities, sexual and other identities, and racial and ethnic discrimination. In addition, they include a challenge that is common to almost all of us, the pain of loss and disappointment, whether it comes from the death of a loved one, poor physical, mental, or emotional health, or lost dreams. These are challenges that do not go away easily. Rather, they are often struggles that we must deal with throughout our lives. While ideally we could all, with Peter, simply respond with seemingly immediate faith, the reality is that, as Mormon taught, we receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. Just as Jacob wrestled with an angel till dawn and Enos wrestled all night before the Lord, for so many of us the trial of our faith often includes long, sometimes lifelong, struggles. I submit that these struggles are necessary to our progression, but they are not struggles that we should ever face alone. While it is true that Jesus Christ and his atonement provide us strength, healing, and salvation, in this life he often succors and blesses us through others. Employing the image of the church as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Quaker missionary Sarah Elizabeth Roundtree wrote, Remember, Christ has no human body now upon the earth but yours, no hands but yours, 
No feet but yours. Yours, my brothers and sisters, are the eyes through which Christ's compassion has to look upon the world. And yours are the lips with which his love has to speak. This sentiment strongly supports the church's renewed emphasis on ministering, which Elder Jeffrey R. Holland helped introduce by directly connecting it with Jesus' injunction, love one another as I have loved you. The Book of Mormon teaches that the obligation to love and serve one another is implicit in the covenants we make at baptism. When we promise to bear one another's burdens, mourn with those who mourn, and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. As part of her instruction regarding ministering, President G.B. Bingham, president of the General Relief Society, noted that the model for ministering to the one is Jesus, who smiled at, talked with, walked with, listened to, made time for, encouraged, taught, fed, and forgave. He served family and friends, neighbors and strangers alike. True ministering is accomplished one by one with love as the motivation. As illustrated by his dialogue with a Samaritan woman, Jesus' love had no gender or ethnic bounds. The result of that encounter, one that flouted so many of the time's cultural expectations and constraints, was that an entire village of Samaritans came to Christ leading the villagers to declare that Jesus was not just the Redeemer of Israel, but the Savior of the world. Jesus' interactions were always tailored to the understanding and the needs of the individual. When Martha, grieving at the death of her brother, expressed faith in the resurrection, Jesus responded with testimony, declaring, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She responded, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Conversely, when her sister Mary expressed her grief through uncontrolled tears, Jesus simply wept with her, providing the perfect example of mourning with those who mourn. Significantly, in Mark's version of the story of the rich young man, Jesus showed that his love was not curtailed when one was unwilling or felt unable to follow him. When the young man had expressed his prior obedience to the commandments, the Markan narrator simply noted, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. While we have no idea what the young man's later choices in that life or in the spirit world that followed might have been, we can be certain that Jesus continued to love him. Only by learning to follow our Lord's example of testifying to, compassionately mourning with, and persistently loving people in a variety of circumstances can we effectively minister to the one. As aspiring Christians, but still imperfect saints, we may not always understand the struggles of others or even know how to help, but we can always love them creating safe spaces where others, and often we ourselves, can struggle with the hard sayings in life. When I use the expression safe spaces, I do not necessarily use it in the same sense as some in our broader society use it. Rather than alluding to trigger warnings, the effects of microaggressions, or the need to shield ourselves from difficult language and ideas, 
I am using it to refer to creating environments that are, on the one hand, places of faith where we can seek and nurture testimony, but are also, on the other, places where our sisters and brothers can safely question and share their pain. This requires flexibility and sensitivity on our part, requiring that we listen as much as or more than we speak. Sociologist Charles Derber, for instance, has warned of the dangers of conversational narcissism. Sometimes we default to platitudes to avoid uncomfortable situations when we don't know what to say. Or in an attempt to find common ground, we shift the conversation to our own experiences rather than just listening or giving supportive examples and responses. Jesus' example with Mary suggests just the opposite. Even harder is overcoming our own implicit and often explicit biases and prejudices. Nonetheless, there is ample scriptural precedent that God loves all his children, and we need to have that same openness. Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Likewise, Nephi declared, He inviteth them all to come unto him and to partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that cometh unto him, black or white, bond and free, male and female, and all are alike unto God. President M. Russell Ballard has taught, we need to embrace God's children compassionately and eliminate any prejudice, including racism, sexism, and nationalism. Let it be said that we truly believe the blessings of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ are for every child of God. Without diluting the doctrine or compromising the standards of the gospel, we must open our hearts wider, reach out farther, and love more fully. By so doing, we can recreate more space for love, testimony, mourning, and agency. We can then find not only peace, but even joy in the midst of the struggle. The example of Tom Christofferson provides a powerful example of how love created space for him in his lifelong wrestle with one of his own hard sayings. In his 2017 memoir, That We May Be One, A Gay Mormon's Perspective on Faith and Family, he recounts his own journey with homosexuality in the gospel. Although Brother Christofferson was careful to underscore that his experience was his alone and might not apply to all LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, his journey illustrates what a decisive role love can have as one makes hard decisions about his or her life. A few years after he came out to his family and after he had asked to be excommunicated, his mother explained to his brothers and their wives that the only thing we can really be perfect at is loving each other. The most important lesson your children will learn from how our family treats their Uncle Tom is that nothing they can ever do will take them outside the circle of our family's love. His family did not wait for him to return to church before they could fully love him. 
and at a much later point in his life, an inspired bishop and the new Canaan ward in Connecticut warmly accepted and supported him, not imposing any prequalifications. While this love eventually helped lead Brother Christofferson back to full membership in the church, it is clear that both his birth and his ward families would have continued to love and fellowship him regardless of what choice he made. We should never fear that we are compromising when we make the choice to love. As Brother Christofferson notes, accepting others does not mean that we condone, agree with, or conform to their beliefs or choices, but simply that we allow the realities of their lives to be different than our own. Whether those realities mean that they look, act, feel, or experience life differently than we do, the unchanging fact is that they are children of loving heavenly parents and the same Jesus suffered and died for them as for us. Not just for our LGBTQ plus sisters and brothers, but for many people. The choice to love can literally make the difference between life and death. Creating space where testimony can give strength and encouragement is another powerful way of ministering to the one. An example of such strength-inspiring testimony is the example of Mormon pioneer Jane Manning James, a sister of African descent. Not long after she heard Mormon elders preach in 1842, she joined the church. Like the Samaritan woman, she shared her witness with her family. And that same year, she led eight of them on a journey of over 800 miles from Wilton, Connecticut to Nauvoo, Illinois, much of it by foot, in order to gather with the Latter-day Saints. She was one of the first companies of pioneers to enter the Salt Lake Valley in 1847 and remained faithful throughout her life, even though her husband later left her and she was denied those temple blessings she sought during her mortal life, only being endowed by proxy in 1878. Along with Amanda and Samuel D. Chambers, Elijah Abel and Green Flake, Sister James, or Aunt Jane, was one of the early LDS pioneers remembered at the B-1 celebration on June 1st that commemorated the 1978 revelation on the priesthood. While their examples are inspiring to all of us, their faithfulness has special meaning to our brothers and sisters of African descent. Among this number were members of the organizing committee of that event, such as Darius Gray, Members who are themselves pioneers and examples of faith and testimony. All of us need to cultivate testimonies of our own. But when we struggle, sometimes we need to know that we are not alone. This is certainly true for the women of the church. Many of whom desire female role models, as well as the more often talked about male figures of scripture and history. Although I grew up in a family of strong, capable, talented, and faithful women, I did not realize this until I had a heart-rending experience with my only daughter, Rachel, when she was only 11 or 12. She was our only child for six years. She was our baby girl. She was my princess. 
When she was in middle school, I used to drive her to the bus stop each morning. And often as we waited, we would do our scripture reading together. One day we were reading one of those problem passages in Paul. Either 1 Corinthians 14 or maybe 1 Timothy 2. She looked at me and asked, Daddy, why does Heavenly Father not like girls as much as boys? I don't even know what I was doing reading Paul with the 7th grader. Perhaps it's an occupational hazard of having a religion professor as a dad. I could have tried a complicated exegesis. <laughs> Speaking of textual history or dislocation or trying to explain the time and culture-specific problem of the elite women in Corinth and Ephesus. But at that time, all I could tearfully do was testify to my daughter that I knew Heavenly Father and Jesus loved her as much as me. In the years since, I have striven to give my daughter and my students, male and female, models of powerful women of faith and testimony. Old Testament prophetesses such as Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, and Huldah. New Testament disciples such as Mary, the mother of our Lord, the other Marys, and Martha, and latter-day women of Christ like Emma, Eliza R. Snow, even my own mother. In such an environment of testimony, Rachel has grown into a woman of Christ, a senior at BYU, a student of the Scriptures, an ordinance worker in the Provo Temple, and one who is important as an individual, not just as our daughter and a sister or a future wife and mother. I'm still learning that in addition to my own testimony, I must find and share faithful witnesses of all sexes, tongues, peoples, and life experiences. When Jesus wept with Mary, he gave her space to share her pain and then extended true understanding. When people struggle with a hard saying, such as our racial history, Healing only comes when we listen and acknowledge what they feel. At the B1 celebration, President Down H. Oaks acknowledged such past and current pain, noting, institutionally, the church reacted swiftly to the revelation on the priesthood. Ordinations and temple recommends came immediately. In contrast, changes in the hearts and practices of individual members did not come suddenly and universally. Some, in their personal lives, continued the attitudes of racism that have been painful to so many throughout the world, including the past 40 years. Several years ago, I became good friends with two wonderful, energetic, and spirited women, Tamu Smith and Zandra Vrains. Known as the Sisters in Zion, they are African-American LDS bloggers whom I have often heard describe their experiences, good and bad, as we spoke at events together. I thought I understood and was sensitive to those experiences. But in the weeks leading up to the B1 celebration, I was party to discussions online and in person where I saw their pain and the pain of their sisters and brothers. There were discussions about the difference between celebrating or commemorating the priesthood revelation. A terrible, fraudulent letter purporting to be an apology for past racism reopened old wounds. There were even discussions and debates about cultural appropriation, such as whether a white ally such as I 
should even sing a traditional song of Negro liberation. There were things I had not understood, pain that I had not felt, and I needed to resist the temptation to come up with answers or defenses, and instead I just needed to sit with them, listening and trying to understand. Similarly, this last year I had a student who once tried to express herself in class. She did so awkwardly, trying to convey an idea that another student quickly countered. Rather ineptly, I tried to bridge the gap. Eager to move the lecture on, I fumbled to close the conversation, which was, ironically, a discussion about the hard sayings at the end of John 6. Later that day, I received an email from the student who explained her ongoing struggle with a mental illness. She shared a poem with me, some of the lines of which speak tellingly of our need to listen and try to understand the experiences of someone who struggles. You say, I don't love enough, I don't care enough, I'm not kind enough, I'm not good enough. But you don't see I'm frightened, I'm scared, I'm broken, I'm alone. When we are called upon to mourn with those who mourn, even when it is not an obvious hard saying such as race, mental illness, gender, or sexuality, sometimes we simply need to sit with them to listen and love. Just as Jesus did not compel the rich young man to follow him and allow those disciples who could not bear his teaching to depart, we must make space for agency. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, then a member of the First Presidency, noted that today when people leave the church, sometimes we assume it is because they have been offended or lazy or sinful. Actually, it is not that simple. It may break our hearts when their journey takes them away from the church, but we honor their right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own conscience, just as we claim that privilege for ourselves. We have been commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when it comes to neighbors, there are no outsiders. Perhaps even more importantly, even when our fellow saints find themselves outside of formal church fellowship or membership, they should never find themselves outside of the fellowship of our friendship and the circle of our love. This point was underscored to me later in June when I was on tour with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. On tour, we regularly have singers from local groups join us for our sound check the afternoon before a concert. In Mountain View, California, the local singers were members of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus who came in their purple t-shirts and were received kindly and without judgment into the choir stands. Their director, Dr. Tim Selig, was welcomed warmly by Elder Donald L. Hallstrom of the 70 and our choir leadership. And that evening, he conducted the encore at the end of our concert. Our guests included people who may never become members of the church and even a few who used to be members. But together that night, we enjoyed our common humanity and shared love of music. As positive as that experience was, for one of my friends, it was difficult. With his permission, I share just part of his story. Alex is a member of the church, a singer in the choir, committed to keeping his covenants and gay. But as we were building bridges that day, he felt in his terms like he was still under a rock. His continued choice to stay in the church comes at the cost of constant struggle, frequent pain, and considerable loneliness. 
We sat together for the better part of an hour, during which time he, like Martha, expressed testimony, but like Mary, he mourned. President Ballard has taught, we need to listen to and understand what our LGBT brothers and sisters are feeling and experiencing. Certainly, we must do better than we have done in the past so that all members feel they have a spiritual home where their brothers and sisters love them and where they have a place to fellowship and serve the Lord. The psalmist proclaim, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Each of us has nights and days of weeping in this life. We all experience loss and pain in its various forms. Almost all of us have lost a loved one. Many of us have lost dreams and hopes. All of us are at the risk of losing health or ability. Yet even in our loss, we can experience peace and joy. We are promised peace in this world as well as eternal life in the world to come. Christ came that we may have life and that more abundantly. I have written and spoken elsewhere about the greatest loss and heartache of my life. The autism diagnosis of our only son, Samuel. Although he was not formally diagnosed until he was four, he had clear developmental delays and challenges with emotional self-regulation from the time he was a baby. Still, we were frantic when he soon began to regress. He stopped smiling, would not let us hold him, and began to lose some of the little language that he had. On the day he was finally diagnosed, the child we thought we would have and the dreams we had for him died. Still, with early intervention, the help of trained specialists, and lots of prayer and inspiration, we have seen miracles, small and great. We taught him to smile again, and he learned how to receive our love and better express his own. In March 2015, I ordained him a deacon, and he now faithfully passes the sacrament each week. This last year, with the help of his dedicated aide, Kelly Snelson, he successfully completed his freshman year of high school. While our worries for the future remain, with love, testimony, and support in our heartache, we have much room for joy. The psalmist also wrote, This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Before we reach such mornings of rejoicing, we must help each other through nights of struggle. We need to love one another as Jesus loved us. Without diluting the doctrine or compromising our standards, we must open our hearts wider, reach out farther, and love more loudly, making spaces for struggle and faith. As we await the final victory, which is assured if we come to Jesus Christ. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to talk, a time to listen, a time to act, a time to sit, a time to testify, a time to weep, a time to embrace, and a time to let go. A time to encourage, and a time to accept. This is the church of Jesus Christ. I love the wonderful diversity of the mosaic that is the body of Christ. Each beautiful piece reflecting the glorious light of God's love. 
As we all wrestle together, may we truly make our families and friendships, our neighborhoods and wards, and our classrooms and offices spaces for love, spaces for testimony, spaces for mourning and understanding, spaces for agency, and spaces for joy. Thanks be to God who has given us this victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is including all in the body of Christ. We've just heard from Eric D. Huntsman. After the break, we'll return for Rick Jellin with Quinoa and Olive Trees Strengthening the Lord's Vineyard. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is including all in the body of Christ. Next is Rick Jellin, Associate Dean of the College of Life Sciences at BYU when this address was given, entitled Quinoa and Olive Trees, Strengthening the Lord's Vineyard. I thought I would focus my talk today, or begin my talk, by introducing two experiences that have had an enduring impact on my life. These happened, both of them, when I was a recent convert to the Church. The first experience happened just a week or so after my baptism. I was invited by a friend of my brother to attend a home worship service of an evangelical fellowship. After the meeting, the preacher invited us to stay and discuss our new religion. Although we shared a a common belief in the divine mission of Jesus Christ— His ensuing attack on the character of Joseph Smith was ruthless, and as a 15-year-old convert, I was unprepared to defend the Church. Along with my very personal witness from the Spirit regarding the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, I discovered that night that the foundational belief upon which we disagreed was the idea that we are not creatures, but actually spirit children of God, our Heavenly Father. As the Apostle Paul taught the ignorant Athenians on Areopagus, God hath made of one blood all nations of men who are the offspring of God. I think this doctrine resonated so deeply with me because I had been raised in a single-parent household by my father. I had a deep-seated emotional understanding of Dad's love for us and gradually came to understand and appreciate intellectually how much he had sacrificed to raise my brother and me as a single parent. Consequently, although Dad was far from perfect, it was naturally easy for me to embrace the concept of a loving Heavenly Father as the great universal God. The second experience occurred some weeks or months afterwards. My father was an accomplished musician. He was a cellist in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. One day we were talking, and my agnostic father posed a question that went something like this. The Jews claim to be God's chosen people. And when I look at their tremendous historical influence in the arts, philosophy, science, and business, disproportionately large relative to their small numbers, I have to acknowledge that is not an outrageous claim. If members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are also God's chosen people, how come I don't see similar accomplishments and influence from members of your Church? 
I responded that the Jews had been around as a people for over 2,000 years, while the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was not even 150 years old. Remember, this was back in 1978. My father's assumption, a common expectation, is that God's true religion should have the power to transform its believers into people who are not only loving, compassionate, industrious, generous, in other words, good, but also people capable of extraordinary achievements in the arts, sciences, sports, business, and government, along with religion. For example, the Jewish people can count over 200 Nobel Prize winners, around 20% of the total number of laureates. I believe that President Spencer W. Kimball also believed this, as he issued a bold declaration and challenge in his landmark BYU 1976 Second Century Address. I quote, I am both hopeful and expectant that out of this university and the Church's education system, there will arise brilliant stars in drama, literature, music, sculpture, painting, science, and in all the scholarly graces. He then challenged this university to be the refining host for many such individuals who will touch men and women the world over long after they have left this campus." Putting these two experiences together, I believe that our loving Heavenly Father afforded us additional grace through the covenants we have made. One potential purpose of those covenants is to empower us to become brilliant stars and refining agents should we elect to do so. The gospel should also engender in us a heightened awareness of and empathy for the suffering of our neighbor. I have noticed this in my own almost 43 years of discipleship as I have sought to know God through studying the scriptures, serving in church callings, and serving mankind in various ways through my work. I am a father of four sons and also now a grandfather of three adorable little boys. I naturally hope that they will emulate the kinds of life choices that have brought me great happiness. If God is also my Father, shouldn't He logically have the same hope and expectation for all of His children? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught us more about this and a key truth about how we can come to know God in his October 2003 General Conference talk entitled The Grandeur of God. I quote again, Of the many magnificent purposes served in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, one great aspect of that mission often goes uncelebrated. His followers did not understand it fully at the time, and many in modern Christianity do not grasp it now. But the Savior himself spoke of it repeatedly and emphatically. It is the grand truth that in all that Jesus came to say and do, including and especially in his atoning suffering and sacrifice, he was showing us who and what God our Eternal Father is like. In word and in deed, Jesus was trying to reveal and make personal to us the true nature of his Father, our Father in heaven. He did this at least in part because then and now all of us need to know God more fully in order to love him more deeply and obey him more completely." Incidentally, I did a word count 
and found that in 3 Nephi, Jesus referred to God by the title of Father 180 times, and in the Gospel of John, 113 times, far more frequently than any other use of the title of deity. In citing the prophet Joseph Smith's lectures on faith and also the Savior's great intercessory prayer in John 17, Elder Holland went on to emphasize that having a correct knowledge of God's character and attributes is essential in order for us to be able to exercise the kind of faith that leads us to eternal life. Hence, in the great intercessory prayer in John 17, the Savior taught that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Elder Holland also highlighted two scriptural examples from Moses chapter 7 and Zenos' allegory of the olive trees in Jacob 5. Both of these accounts feature a despondent Heavenly Father weeping over his violent and corrupted children. How wonderful it is to think of God as our Father, endowed with a glorified body and passions, among them the great emotion, love, and empathy and we are all his children. I love how Alma taught the people of Gideon in Alma chapter 7 that Jesus would purposely take upon himself the pains and the sicknesses and infirmities of humanity so that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people and become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief for our sakes, to quote Isaiah. I wonder what these scriptures imply about a disciple's need to emulate the Savior and acquaint ourselves with the suffering of our fellow men. Intriguingly, the master of the vineyard in Zenos' allegory in Jacob 5.49 seems to test the empathy of the servant when he proposes, let us go to and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard, for I have done all. He follows with a question that he had asked the servant twice previously. What could I have done more for my vineyard? The servant then issues the appropriate plea, the only appropriate plea, spare it a little longer. The allegory of the olive trees is especially interesting to me since I'm a crop geneticist. My wonderful colleagues, students, and I study primarily two crops and their relationships with wild relatives. Those two crops are quinoa and oats. Although totally unrelated and originating in different hemispheres, these crops share with the olive tree two characteristics. First, they were domesticated from invasive weeds. And second, they have a problem intending to revert back to their ancestral weedy forms. It is interesting to me that the tame or domesticated olives that produce large edible fruit are frequently produced by grafting domesticated olive branches, the horticultural term is scions, onto the wild olive rootstocks, another horticultural term. The wild olive rootstocks diverse genetics provide the whole plant, cultivated scion included, with natural resistance to pests, diseases, and environmental stresses like drought and extreme heat. Because the wild rootstock is so well adapted and vigorous, if it is not carefully tended by regular pruning, shoots that emerge from the rootstock can grow to choke out the upper scion branches and the latter will eventually wither away and die. 
Similarly, if the upper scion is not carefully pruned, this portion of the tree can become too productive and heavy, exerting lethal strain on the rootstock. It isn't hard to see that olive trees, oats, and quinoa can serve as wonderful metaphors that represent people and the importance of human diversity. In plant breeding, we usually refer to tame plants as being domesticated or elite. And although we do frequently refer to wild plants, the preferred term is exotic when we are talking about germplasm or plant material that we intend to use in crop breeding. Of course, in this metaphor, the tame or elite germplasm represents the true believers who, following in the footsteps of their master, bring forth the good fruits of the gospel, which are kindness and compassion, engagement in missionary and temple work, uh, creating homes that are filled with love where families are taught by the Spirit, and many other good works that bless humanity in a myriad of ways. But couldn't the good fruit also represent artistic masterpieces and groundbreaking scientific discoveries? In contrast, the wild or exotic germplasm represents lives that are devoted to careless self-indulgence, irresponsibility, violence, and disobedience to the, to the conscience that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Nonetheless, both the Lord of the vineyard and his servant see that there is value in the wild olive trees— They have the potential to become domesticated or tamed and the refining value of experience because, after all, they are also children of God in this metaphor. Early on in my career, I received an excellent real-world lesson in the importance of genetic diversity in crop breeding, my chosen profession again. In fall semester of 1985, during my senior year at BYU, I was surprised one day to receive a a phone call, a recruiting call, from Dr. Don Rasmussen, the Director of Graduate Studies of the Plant Breeding Program uh, at the University of Minnesota. He was a Utah State graduate, a native of Ephraim, Utah, and possibly the United States' most successful malting barley breeder. In the end, I decided to attend Minnesota, and the next fall found myself seated in Don Rasmussen's course on breeding self-pollinated crops. Dr. Rasmussen's primary breeding objectives were to produce exceptional quality malting barleys that were high-yielding and had major genetic resistance to to the two most severe barley diseases at the time. In order to improve complex malting and yield traits, his program sacrificed genetic diversity. All of his best varieties, which are still considered the standard for malting quality, were closely related to each other in an effort to concentrate gene forms, which we call alleles, for these two traits. Consequently, he and his colleagues paid little attention to minor diseases that would occasionally appear and cause minor yield losses. In the spring of 1993, the year after I graduated Minnesota with my doctorate, the upper Midwest experienced its wettest spring in centuries. The high humidity and cool temperatures created perfect conditions for one of those otherwise minor barley diseases, fusarium head scab or head blight. The fusarium fungus not only reduces grain yield, but also produces a toxin deoxynivalenol, or DAWN, 
commonly called vomitoxin due to its effect on hogs that are fed infested grain. That was the first of a series of consecutive wet years that saw fusarium uh, fusarium head scab rise to become the main disease of barley and wheat in the Great Spring cereal production region of the upper Red River Valley. USDA barley production statistics shown behind me uh, illustrate a dramatic decrease in barley production in this area that includes eastern North Dakota as well as parts of Minnesota and South Dakota and extending up into the Canadian province of Manitoba. Uh, while many growers in the drier western states of Montana, Idaho, and Washington switched from feed to malting barley production, almost 30 years later, wheat and barley breeders are still desperately searching for genetically diverse, exotic sources of resistance to this disease. And much of the United States' malting barley uh, production appears to have permanently relocated here to the western United States. Our research group at BYU, which is co-directed by me, uh, Drs. Jeff Mon and David Jarvis, is part of an international effort to breed quinoa that is better adapted to grow throughout the world, including the lowland tropics. Farmers in Africa, South Asia, and lowland regions of Latin America would like to be able to grow and feed quinoa to their children because of its excellent protein and mineral content. This has been especially true since the quinoa boom began around the year 2005. Elite quinoa strains were bred by the ancient civilizations of the high Andes mountains to be productive in very cold, high elevation environments. The main production area is in the Andean valleys and plateaus over 12,000 feet above sea level, which is hundreds of feet higher than the top of Mount Timpanogos, which is looming over BYU campus. Uh, however, other cultivated quinoas are present along the narrow coastal strip of south-central Chile, and weedy types, which are commonly known as goosefoot due to the peculiar shape of the leaf, can be found throughout lowland regions of Chile, Argentina, and even here throughout the United States. Before we started working on the problem, the North American weedy goosefoot these strains were not recognized as valuable exotic germplasm for breeding lowland quinoa. Just two years into our quinoa research project, in early November of 2003, I broke away for a day from a scientific conference being held in Denver to see what quinoa production looked like in the United States, visiting the main growing region around Alamosa in southern Colorado. Earlier that year, I had seen for the first time traditional quinoa production fields in the Bolivian Altiplano. Their highly diverse quinoa fields are partly infested with the local weedy goosefoot, and the two often cross-pollinate. The impoverished subsistence farmers who lack mechanization will walk through the fields and separately harvest the black-seeded weedy quinoa, which they often consume in popped form. The discouraged Colorado grower I met with that day in 2003 complained that every three years they had suffered near-total yield losses due to pressure from insect pests and excessive heat. From those two experiences, my colleagues and I started thinking that maybe the solution to failed quinoa production in the U.S. was to try crossing it with lowland-adapted strains of weedy and wild goosefoot. 
The next year, 2004, we started collecting these wild and weedy populations, mostly from Arizona and Utah. Since then, our collection has expanded to include samples from hundreds of goosefoot populations growing in environments as diverse as the Sonoran and Mojave deserts, the Gulf of Mexico coasts, shown here behind me in the coast of Mississippi, the Great Plains, California, and even as far east as the New England coast. We are now crossing these elite quinoas with their exotic our elite quinoas with these exotic goosefoot strains and producing breeding populations that we share with quinoa breeders in a dozen countries on four continents. Here is a photo of a couple of advanced lines we produced from two quinoa by goosefoot cross combinations. Two years ago, while revisiting the Colorado quinoa region, this time not in November but during the growing season, we noticed that the quinoa production fields had native goosefoot plants growing around their margins. In addition, within the fields themselves were many plants showing intermediate characteristics uh, between quinoa and the weedy form, just like we were accustomed to seeing in, in the Andean quinoa fields in Bolivia and Peru. The next year, we sampled 15 plants from this Colorado population, yielding varying degrees of goosefoot characteristics. And after DNA sequence analysis by uh, one of my students, Jake Taylor, and Drs. Mon and Jarvis, we confirmed the extensive introgression of goosefoot DNA, goosefoot genes, into this population. Interestingly, so many years after the Kenoa disaster of 2003, the problem was no longer failure to set seed. It was now a problem of heterogeneity or mixing due to the natural outcrossing process, which was converting Kenoa into a fully adapted crop through genetic mixing with its weedy but totally native and adaptive, adapted cousin. In other words, weedy goosefoot genes had literally saved the Colorado quinoa industry. Although Andean quinoa was bred for a very specific type of environment, within the DNA of quinoa cells is additional genetic diversity because it is a polyploid, a plant that anciently combined the chromosomes of two distinct 18-chromosome species into a single 36-chromosome plant. Because of this enhanced diversity, that 36-chromosome ancestor was more vigorous than its diploid or 18-chromosome relatives, and thus was able to invade and colonize a much wider range of habitats, hence its dispersion throughout lowland and highland environments of North and South America as weedy goosefoot. As humans later, much later, migrated into the Western Hemisphere, weedy goosefoot was already adapted to the disturbances humans made as they cleared land for hunting camps and eventually gardens and villages. People started consuming goosefoot leaves whose flavor is reminiscent of its cousin's spinach. And eventually they began consuming the small but very nutritious black seeds. In time, early indigenous farmers picked out plants having larger non-black seeds and began to sow these. And so the domestication of quinoa began. Once in the Andes and in at least two other places here in ancient North America. While genetic diversity is so important for crop survival, what about in human beings? 
While the genetic answer to this is unquestionably a resounding yes, I believe that culturally the answer to this question is also a resounding yes. With Dr. Len Novilia of the Department of Public Health here at BYU, uh, I co-chair our college's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. We have carefully reviewed, carefully executed organizational and leadership literature from around the country and the data, including from such reputable sources as the Harvard Business Review, indicate that businesses and other organizations having ethnically and gender-diverse leadership structures consistently outperform more homogeneous ones. It was amazing to witness the parade of cultural and ethnic diversity purposely displayed in the Sunday morning general conference session uh, just last month. Clearly, our church leadership recognizes the value of our varied cultural and ethnic backgrounds and experiences, and that we will become even more successful as our leadership reflects the ever-diversifying landscape of international church membership. In returning to Dad's question about the accomplishments of the Jews relative to members of our church, Is it possible that the difference among our two groups of believers can be traced at least in part to diversity? In looking at the history of the Jews, we see a religiously and ethnically cohesive group of people, initially, who migrated from or were driven out of their Near Eastern homeland into tumultuous and often perilous multicultural environments in places like Central and Eastern Europe, Iberia and Morocco, the Eastern Mediterranean, Southern Arabia, and Ethiopia. We call this the Jewish diaspora. Appropriately, this word comes from a botanical term, diaspore, referring to the seed and all of the associated plant tissue that is necessary for for its successful separation from off the mother plant. Within these diverse environments arose distinct Jewish Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, Temani, and Falasha cultures. Contrast that historical experience with the early Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By revelation, we basically did the exact opposite. We fled persecution in the eastern U.S. for the relative seclusion of the western wilderness. Although the Church sent missionaries out to many parts of the world, for the first century we brought the converts back for assimilation here in Zion. Consequently, although the Church gathered tens of thousands of converts, for example, from Scandinavia here to Utah, uh, and they comprise the Scandinavians, 16% of Utah's population in the 1900 census, the descendants of Swedes and Norwegians that we lived with for six years in Minnesota seem to have a stronger affinity for their multicultural roots than their cousins did here in Utah. This is in spite of our very strong dedication to temple and family history work in the Church. I sometimes wonder if one result of the physical gathering to Zion is that we sometimes conflate our prevailing intermountain Western culture in which we live here in Utah and southeastern Idaho with an official Church culture, expecting that our converts from multicultural and international backgrounds will adopt the cultural patterns here as evidence of their complete conversion. 
In last October's General Conference, Elder William K. Jackson of the 70s spoke of a universal culture of Christ. He noted, quote, The culture of Christ comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is eternal and explains the why, what, and where of our existence. It is inclusive, not exclusive. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is hardly a Western society or an American cultural phenomenon. It is an international church, as it was always meant to be. New members from around the world bring richness, diversity, and excitement into our ever-growing family. For BYU to fulfill the prophetic hope, expectation, and challenge— the gauntlet thrown down 45 years ago from this very pulpit by President Kimball and fully become a refining host of brilliant stars, I believe we need to welcome and nurture the expanding diversity of our multicultural American and international brothers and sisters in all of their ethnicities, cultures, languages, and life experiences. The very same Savior who beckoned to us to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, in almost the same breath prayed to our Father, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Moreover, I believe that our Father in heaven expects us to develop this unity and cultivate our diverse talents and abilities so that we can be counted among the few servants in the allegory of the olive trees charged with pruning and edifying his vineyard. He has spared the vineyard as well as all of us for this sacred purpose. I am deeply grateful for the two young missionaries, Elders Levitt and Jenkins, who knocked on my door so many years ago and testify that the gospel of Jesus Christ they taught me is true. I believe Jesus Christ is our atoning Savior, who perfectly exemplified the qualities of His and our loving Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was including all in the body of Christ with thoughts from Eric D. Huntsman and Rick Jellin. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.